COVID cases in the United States reach an all-time high, Iran's top nuclear scientist is assassinated, Venezuela prepares for an election, and millions of Americans remain unemployed and waiting in food lines. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's December 1st, 2020. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. I'm Nicole Roussel, and I'm here with Walter Smolarik and our host, Brian Becker. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Where do you want to start? 93,000 people as of Sunday and on Sunday were hospitalized with COVID. This is an all-time high so far. That's in the United States. You know, I was communicating Nicole and Walter with people in Australia. They hadn't ha- they haven't had a single case of COVID in I don't know 28 days. Well, you know, Brian, it's actually not quite zero COVID cases, but the number of COVID cases in Australia, very, very, very low. I think the point you're making still stands. For instance, on Sunday, right the same day that over 93,000 people were hospitalized for COVID in the United States, the number of COVID cases recorded in Australia was eight. Yeah. Wuhan, the capital of Hubei province, the place where COVID-19 was first discovered. Wuhan is back in business. People are at work. They're uh, seeing their friends and family. There's no social distancing. China has basically taken care of it. It's not just China, not just Australia, many other countries, Vietnam. And yet the United States, which always touts itself as an exceptional country, the richest country in the world, etc., etc., has one out of every four Perhaps maybe it's one out of every five COVID cases and one out of every four COVID deaths in the entire world, even though there was ample, ample time for the U.S. to to prepare to be able to meet this crisis. And again, Nicole, it's not just that people are in hospitals, and it's not just that hospital beds and hospitals are running out of beds. It's also the fact that millions of people are unemployed as a consequence of this government failure. They're unemployed. Their insurance benefits, unemployment insurance benefits, have either run out or many people never receive them. And hunger is growing. In Montgomery County, Maryland, not far from where we are, the the rate of hunger, or what's now called food insecurity, the new euphemism for hunger, has risen by 800% just in the last few months. The United States is in crises, and yet when you look at what's going on in Congress, what's going on between the two ruling class parties, they're mostly talking about each other. They're talking about what comes next, who's going to be in the Biden cabinet, but no sense of alarm, no sense of crisis. Meanwhile, healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, 
families, everyone who's affected, and this is almost everyone is affected now, is in crisis. What a disconnect between this government and the powers that be and the people of this country. It is so disgusting. I mean, it is truly criminal, the complete neglect of this government, of state governments, uh, of local governments. But I mean, you know, really primarily um, Congress and the federal government for doing so little when there is so much that we could do. There's so much that this government could be doing. There's so much money in this country. And it, you know, we've we've seen so many other countries, even capitalist countries who have done so much of a better job on this crisis than we have. There are countries that are much, much poorer than we are that have far fewer resources that have been able to actually, you know, get together all of the testing, the widespread testing that is necessary. And here the United States is with lots of localities where you have to be sick to get a test when we know that there are many asymptomatic carriers. And, you know, we know that it's it's real that people you know, can't continue in lockdown for nine months at a time. And that's just not realistic. And so what's actually necessary is testing. What's actually necessary is actual clear guidelines that people need to be doing and, you know, real risk mitigation if people do need to take risks because people do need to go to the doctor and they need to go um, to the hospital if if there are people who have um, other sorts of illnesses right now. They're, you know, they're, sure. they have to go to the hospital and they're possibly going to be impacted. This is just... It's so, so clear, I think, to the majority of people in this country that this has been such a criminally negligent response. Yes, of course. I want to just move on uh, real quickly. But here's the thing is if if the government had shut the economy down and made sure that no one lost their job, that the government stepped in and paid the salaries or wages of all people who couldn't come to work, that would be all of the non-essential workers and if they if the entire country had been locked down for 5 weeks we would not be here right now but instead the lockdowns only come when the spike in the virus overwhelms the hospitals which is when it's too late it's too late and to make matters worse what few relief programs do exist many of them are set to expire at the end of the year there is one study that came out showing that up to 12 million people could lose their benefits uh, the day after Christmas. Um, things like the unemployment extension that allows uh, quote unquote gig economy workers to be covered, you know, that's something that's going to expire at the end of the year. The CDC moratorium on evictions, that also expires at the end of the year. The moratorium on student loan payments, uh, that's another important relief program that's going to expire. So if anything, on the economic front, on the social front, the social calamity that the pandemic has caused and that uh, moreover government incompetence has caused uh, is set to intensify. Let's go on to another a big story. The Well, he at least is described in the U.S. media as Iran's top nuclear scientist, assassinated in a very, very dramatic ambush in Iran. He was part of a four-car convoy. He had ample security. There was uh, what, what's being touted in the Western media, sort of bragged about, is the, uh, the, the new innovations in targeted assassinations. I'm looking at Forbes magazine. 
why a remote-controlled machine gun was the perfect weapon for assassinating Iranian nuclear scientists. Uh, let's just put the shoe on the other foot for a minute. For a minute, can you imagine if another country, say Iran, for instance, assassinated or worked with another party, another country, a third country, to assassinate top American scientific officials? And the Iranian media said, why a remote-controlled machine gun was the perfect weapon for assassinating America's nuclear scientists? Can you imagine, can we imagine what the response would be? I mean, the, the chauvinism and the imperialism of the way the media is treating this in the West is so gross. Here's another one. This is Max Boot, a columnist, neocon columnist in the Washington Post. Targeted killings won't end the Iranian nuclear program, but could make a deal more likely. Again, put the shoe on the other foot. Can you imagine reading like Fars News Service or Press TV and say, targeted killings won't end America's nuclear program, but it could bring America to the table. A negotiated agreement maybe will be more likely. Can we imagine what the consequences would be? if the Iranian media talked about and bragged about the assassination of foreign leaders, in, in particular U.S. or Israeli leaders, can we imagine exactly what the response would be? You know, Nicole, we did, we're going to have a, a story on this entirely on U.S.-Iran relations as we move towards the new Biden administration. We talked with Mohammed Morandi, We've been interviewing him. We're going to bring our audience the full show on Thursday in our segment called The Real Story. But I want to play, I want to play a short audio clip uh, from this longer interview with Mohammed Morandi. Mohammed is a professor. He is a, an expert a commentator. He's an expert on, on U.S.-Iranian relations. He's a professor at the University of Tehran. I want to play a short audio clip from that interview. Again, the entire interview will be broadcast Thursday, but I want to listen to Mohammed Morandi, and then I want to get, uh, I want to talk with both of you about the implications of what he's saying. What in fact happens now is that because of this act of war, Iran is speaking about retaliation. We already know from public information that the United States knew about the attack, was well-informed, gave the green light, and was most probably involved because the Israelis don't have the capability to carry out such an attack without U.S. logistical support. So when we look at Trump's retweets and the information that was given to the New York Times by American officials, it becomes pretty clear what happened and who was behind it. So now the Iranians are saying two things will have to happen. One is that in order to punish the United States and the Europeans, because the Europeans did not condemn the attack, they will decrease cooperation with the International Atomic Energy Agency, and they will also decrease their remaining commitments that are being carried out within the framework of the nuclear deal. Right now, the Europeans and the Americans are not abiding by any of their commitments but the Iranians are still abiding by some of theirs. Those may come to an end pretty soon if parliament pa has its way. Then there's the second element, and that is retaliation, which I believe will probably be lethal and directed against Israel. 
All right. Uh, that's that's pretty important, Walter. What Mohammed Morandi is telling us is that Iran won't stay or may not stay even at its current uranium enrichment program. Uh, again, the U.S. and Europe failed to carry out their end of the bargain with the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear arms deal. Even Obama imposed more sanctions on Iran, contrary to both the spirit and the letter of the agreement. And he's also saying that Iran, probably not expecting any major change in the Biden administration, must do something to retaliate to show that you can't keep killing Iranian officials without a response. Now, let's go back. Uh, at the beginning of January, January 3rd, General Qasem Soleimani, the top Iranian military figure and the leader of Iran's regional effort to defeat ISIS, came to Baghdad airport on uh, the invitation of the Iraqi government and after its consultation with the Trump administration to have peace talks, to talk about the po a possible peaceful settlement of different disputes. And when he arrived at the airport, the U.S. used military aircraft to assassinate him and other top leaders of Iraq's popular resistance movement. Now, Iran did retaliate. The Iranian retaliation was very measured. On, on January 8th, they used perhaps a dozen missiles and struck two U.S. bases in Iraq. The U.S. could not stop these missile strikes on these bases, but it was measured because it was clear that Iran, if it wanted to, could have killed a lot of American soldiers. But instead, the targeting was such that while many, many U.S. military personnel suffered severe brain trauma injuries, there were no deaths, or at least we were told there were no deaths. So it was a measured response. And then Trump, even though he was pounding his chest and talking about how he wasn't going to take it, that in fact, the U.S. did not retaliate for Iran's retaliation. That's how the crisis sort of ebbed in January 2020 after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. But what Mohammed Morandi is saying, he believes that Iran will this time have a lethal retaliation, at least as the second part of his message there. Again, this is probably what Trump wanted and what Netanyahu wanted. Netanyahu, by the way, is uh, bragging. He went on, he did a, a video for his supporters, his right-wing racist supporters in Israel, and he said, uh, on the day of the assassination, November 27th, he, he in his video message, he said, quote, I can't tell you everything I've done in the past week, but we've made some big, uh, we've made some big accomplishments. Anyway, what do we expect coming now just, you know, right before Biden comes in? Biden did say during the campaign that he wanted to return to the JCPOA, although he was also suggesting that Iran would have to uh, be proactive to meet some new conditions. Anyway, Walter, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, just to start off on on just the terroristic nature of this assassination, I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu threatened this top Iranian scientist by name on television two years ago. Um, Netanyahu is a big fan of these theatrical presentations. He's done it at the United Nations before, and this one was uh, televised in Israel. It had a bunch of props, and Netanyahu said, oh, we we had this great intelligence breakthrough and it turns out that Iran 
used to have a nuclear weapons program and and they didn't destroy all their files. And this guy, when there was a nuclear weapons program, was involved. And remember that name. Uh, that's what he said. Remember that name two years ago. Uh, and then he was and then he was assassinated in all likelihood by Israel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is this is un, unbelievable stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to your to your question, I think that uh, another dimension of this is is Iranian domestic politics, because there's a major current in Iranian politics uh, that is not in power in the in the current Rouhani administration uh, that that essentially argued since negotiations with the United States over the JCPOA began in uh, I believe it was 2013 uh, that that this was this was always kind of a waste of time like we know the United States the United States always goes back on their word why would we trust them why would we give them any concessions. Uh, and so what the Trump administration did was was essentially prove that faction of Iranian internal politics correct. Uh, and so there's there's a presidential election coming up at the first half of next year. Um, so it's possible that uh, somebody representing uh, the opposition, which uh, just swept to power in the last parliamentary election, so they, they kind of have the momentum, uh, could be elected. Uh, and that that would, I think, significantly complicate a Biden administration's effort to revive the JCPOA, if if in fact that's what they want to do. I mean, they could instead uh, insert these poison pills about, for instance, Iranian ballistic missile production, uh, things that that they know that Iran could never accept and, and certainly wouldn't accept uh, if the opposition wins the presidential election. So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there, there still is a distinct possibility that the JCPOA in some form could be revived, but I think that there are many serious obstacles standing in its way. I want to uh, just remind our audience again, as I said before, we're going to have an in-depth discussion on U.S.-Iran relations, on the assassination of this top nuclear scientist, and what's likely to happen with the incoming Biden administration. You can hear that full show with Mohammed Mirandi this Thursday on the episode of the socialist program called The Real Story. Nicole, let's turn to the Venezuela elections. Uh, very, very important elections coming up on December 6th. Uh, we've reached out to some experts, including Leonardo Flores. Uh, but again, uh, what's the what's the significance? And and you had a brief conversation with Leo, and I know we have some audio from it. Just let's let's talk about that. Yep. So uh, again, like you said, there are elections coming up um, on December 6th that are very important in Venezuela. Um, these are elections for, you know, the kind of initial Congress that um, that they have that is uh, currently dominated by opposition forces. So this could be a really important election if some of the PSUV, the um, supporters of um, of the revolution, of the supporters of the, you know, the movement to socialism, um, are able to get into into those offices. So we talked with, I talked with Leonardo Flores. He's a Latin America campaign coordinator for Code Pink and an expert on Venezuela. Then um, I'm going to play his response to my first question. And my first question for him was was in on January 23rd, 2019. Um, Juan Guaido proclaimed himself to be the president of Venezuela. And at that time, the United States strong armed many countries into recognizing him as such, despite not being elected. And I asked him how the upcoming election might impact Juan Guaido and his supporters. And here was his response. 
Juan Guaido and the extremist opposition in Venezuela base their legitimacy on the fact that they hold seats in the country's National Assembly. To be clear, Guaido has absolutely no legitimate claim to the presidency. His self-proclamation and subsequent recognition by the U.S. and its allies is a farce that has no legal basis, yet he is an elected legislator. However, he and the extreme opposition have opted to boycott the upcoming legislative elections, which are constitutionally mandated. In doing so, he's making himself even less relevant in Venezuelan politics. Guaido's current support comes exclusively from abroad, primarily the United States, Spain, and Colombia. Inside the country, he squandered any unity he may have achieved within the opposition by launching a failed and ridiculed coup, by being photographed with Colombian paramilitaries, by asking for sanctions, by asking for a U.S. military intervention, by hiring U.S. mercenaries, and by corruption and mismanagement of the funds stolen from the Venezuelan people and given to him and his cronies by the Trump administration. As a result of this, the opposition, which has always been historically divided, split even more. A moderate opposition faction has opted to participate in the elections. They've been engaging in dialogue with the Maduro government. They mostly reject sanctions and they don't want war. It's unlikely that this moderate opposition will win the National Assembly outright, in part because of the partial boycott, but a good showing on election day could mark an important turning point for Venezuela. Regardless of how the vote breaks down, every vote on Sunday should be considered a vote against war, coups, and sanctions. Every vote will be a vote for peace and against what Guaido represents. Nicole, the, um, the, the, Leo Flores is saying basically the sun is setting on Juan Guaido. Uh, but there's a bigger issue than even Juan Guaido, which is, of course, Juan Guaido is simply a puppet figure of uh, of the United States, uh, picked by the Trump administration uh, in order to carry out regime change that failed. But the U.S. hostility towards Venezuela, no matter what the fate of Juan Guaido, the U.S. attitude towards the Maduro government and the Bolivarian process in Venezuela, none of that's going to change. The, the Biden administration will be, you know, doing all that it can, even if it selects different tactics to carry out the overthrow of this government. Uh, but the the way it's going to play out right now, the way it's going to play out, and I know you talked to Leo, is uh, the U.S. will challenge the legitimacy of the December 6th election if uh, their side, the opposition, does not win. And, uh, you know, there have been numerous elections in Venezuela. Most of them have been won by the by the pro uh, Hugo Chavez movement, the Bolivarian process, now led by uh, Nicolas Maduro. But sometimes they've lost. They've had big setbacks, too. When when they've lost the election, they recognize the legitimacy of the government. But the U.S. never recognizes the legitimacy of the Venezuelan election or really any country's election unless those elements, those political players who the U.S. favors are, in fact, the winners. I know you talked to Leo about this. I did. I did. I uh, We talked also about um, what you were just saying. The PSUV has organized many elections over the years, and they've won a lot of them, but they've also lost some. And when they've lost, you know, they've recognized that the opposition has won. Um, but what I asked Leo was, of course, you know, we can anticipate that the U.S. government and media will condemn the elections as nothing but an act of fraud. And I wanted to know from him, you know, what the best response would be, how he would respond to those sorts of allegations. The U.S. government has already condemned Venezuela's elections as fraudulent, despite the fact that they haven't been held yet. 
Mainstream media will predictably follow suit. They'll uncritically report these U.S. claims as fact. The truth is, is that Venezuela's electoral system is one of the safest in the world. It's an electronic vote backed by paper receipts. After polls close, the electronic vote count will be verified by accounting of those receipts. The system undergoes over a dozen audits prior, during, and after the voting process. There are more than 14,000 candidates running from over 100 political parties. The results will be known within hours of polls closing. Elections in Venezuela are significantly more democratic and trustworthy than those in the United States. Any attempts to discredit the vote have to be understood in the context of the U.S.'s ongoing war, an ongoing hybrid war on Venezuela that seeks regime change through sanctions, covert operations, attempted coups, and military threats. The resulting suffering and instability disproportionately harms poor and working people. Claiming that elections are fraudulent before they're even held, and insisting that fraud occurred in the face of overwhelming evidence against such a position, seems to be a specialty of the Trump administration. They did it just now with the U.S. presidential elections, they're doing it with Venezuela's legislative elections, and they did it in 2018 with Venezuela's presidential elections. In that case, they pressured several opposition candidates from running against President Maduro, they supported the partial opposition boycott, and they spent the ensuing years claiming that Maduro was somehow illegal legitimate, which is their basis of their argument for recognizing Guaido. They're employing the same strategy again in order to try to continue the fiction that Guaido is president. The Trump administration will not recognize the new National Assembly, which will most likely be sworn in a few weeks before Trump leaves office. And it's also likely that they will sanction newly elected legislators, including any from the opposition that win. There isn't much reason to believe that things will be any different under a Biden administration. Support for Guaido and for U.S. empire is entirely bipartisan. That's Leo Flores. Uh, Nicole was able to talk to Leo about the upcoming elections. We're going to uh, continue to follow the elections very, very closely. A, a great number of election observers are there, including some of the people we work with in the anti-war movement here in the United States. Uh, so we will next week be bringing uh, to our audience a, a full sort of assessment and analysis of what's happened and also to be able to critique the the narrative that will be promoted by the U.S. government and the media, which has been written ahead of the election. And it's so interesting that Leo said they've declared the election illegitimate before it even happens, because obviously uh, they don't want any election right now to take place in Venezuela because it would sanctify or indicate that the Venezuelan government is, in fact, the government of Venezuela when they have been spending the last almost two years now uh, making the point to the world and getting its the U.S. getting its NATO allies and puppets to join them in, in suggesting that Venezuela has a different government, the government of Juan Guaido. I want to turn to another story, Walter. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, the United States government is stopping Chinese airline and ship crews when they come into American airports or to American ports. They're boarding, uh, they're boarding boats, they're boarding ships. Uh, they're interrogating all of the uh, workers who come from China to identify whether any of them happen to be members of the Communist Party of China. And this sort of witch hunting attack against workers coming from China uh, is being condemned by China. The Chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman, Hua Chenying, said U.S. law enforcement personnel 
are conducting surprise raids on sailors aboard arriving Chinese ships and questioning arriving Chinese airline crews to ascertain whether they are members of the Communist Party. I mean, she says it's to provoke an ideological confrontation. Well, I would say it's undoubtedly an effort to harass working people from China. Uh, I think the U.S. labor movement and the U.S. left uh, should stand up and say, you know, this is the use of McCarthyite tactics against foreign workers who are coming to the United States on business, either because they're sailors or airline crew. I mean, it's so gross and disgusting, but a real indication of how the U.S. government is gearing up for major power conflict. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, can you imagine the reaction from the United States if, for instance, uh, U.S., you know, U.S. pilots uh, for from Delta or American were quizzed by Chinese authorities, you know, if they voted for Joe Biden or if they voted for Donald Trump or if they're registered as a Democrat or a Republican. I mean, it's such a gross violation of free speech rights. Um, so I, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's a revival of this McCarthyite tactic that um, is is completely anti-labor in addition to being anti-free speech and, and anti democracy. Um, the the point that the Chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman was making about this having uh, a, being an attempt to give U.S.-China confrontation a more ideological edge, you know, I, I think that's true. And that's been the trend for a long time. It's something that the Trump administration has really fully embraced. I mean, Mike Pompeo always, always, always talks about the Chinese Communist Party, Chinese Communist Party. He never just says, you know, China. Um, but that's also an approach that I think is is fully shared by Joe Biden. One of the uh, sort of first big foreign policy actions that Joe Biden has pledged to take. Um, we'll see if this actually happens, but this is what he's promised to do is convene what his team calls a summit of democracies, a summit of democracies, meaning uh, that all of the U.S junior partners and proxies and puppets of the world will get together. Joe Biden will assure them that the United States is committed to their alliances all around the world, uh, even though Donald Trump wasn't. For instance, NATO, this horribly destructive military alliance. Uh, Biden will do all of this reassuring. And anybody who's willing to side with the United States versus China will be labeled a democracy and invited to the summit of democracies. Um, I mean, this is the the kind of, you know, 1950s style Cold War language that has reemerged and I think will uh, continue to become a dominating part of political rhetoric in the United States as Biden assumes office. Yeah, before we leave this story, and I want to, I want to, we have a, several more big stories that I want to get to. I want to read a uh, few words from the Wall Street Journal about this issue. And then, Nicole, we'll move on to the next story. Uh, and and the, what we want to talk about in the next story is U.S. relations with North Korea. Here's, here's from the Wall Street Journal. As of November 11th, China Daily said U.S. law enforcement officers and plainclothes personnel had boarded 21 ships owned by two Chinese state enterprises including 16 vessels that were inspected over the course of 25 days in October. Most of the affected ships were boarded immediately after they berthed, according to the China Daily, which said U.S. officials conducted extensive questioning of Chinese personnel that focused on Communist Party membership 
and sometimes lasted several hours. Crew members were also asked about their links with the Chinese government, their views on U.S. presidential candidates, and the pandemic control situation in China, according to China Daily. Uh, the uh, Finally, uh, since September, the newspaper reported U.S. law enforcement agencies also launched surprise raids on arriving Chinese airliners on 16 different occasions. Now, again, uh, for our audience, we'll come back to this story. We're going to do several deep dives about U.S.-China relations as we go into the Biden administration. But there are 92 million Chinese Chinese people are members of the Communist Party. That's 7% of the adult population. So this is obviously uh, designed to harass China, harass Chinese people, create fear and hatred towards China. Again, part of the the pivot to Asia announced in 2011 by Barack Obama turns out to be a pivot towards war with Asia. The U.S. pivoted towards Asia in 1900 and 1899 with the war in the Philippines. It pivoted to Asia in the war with Japan and the dropping of the atomic bomb. It pivoted to Asia with five years later with the Korean War. Uh, seven years after the end of the Korean War, it pivoted to Asia once again with the war in Vietnam. Uh, the pivot to Asia is very dangerous for Asia, and uh, we're going to keep following it. We're going to keep looking at the story, the the consequences, the stakes are very high. But Nicole, let's go on. There's the, the endless demonization of North Korea by the U.S. media. Uh, it's off the charts. I mean, that's not new, but let's just talk about that. Well, Brian, there's a really, really interesting headline in the Washington Post, and it reads, North Korea's Kim vents fury as pressure mounts over virus and economy, comma, South says. So let me let me just read, read that again. North Korea's Kim vents fury as pressure mounts over virus and economy, South says. So it's an article about, and a headline more importantly, about Um, how North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is responding with fury and executing um, two people in the last three months. But it's all according to unnamed sources in South Korea's intelligence agency. So, Brian, tell tell me a little more about why South Korea's intelligence agency might say stuff like that. Well, the South Korean intelligence agency really only exists uh, to demonize uh, North Korea and to hunt down people in South Korea who favor uh, better relations between the North and the South. Or what many, many Koreans want is the peaceful reunification of their country. I mean, the Korean Peninsula and the Korean people have been uh, an entity that has been united for literally thousands of years, ethnically, culturally, the, the continuity of Korean culture, very profound. And you know, there was the division of Korea at the 38th parallel when two young U.S. State Department officials, including Dean Rusk, took a, a ballpoint pen or a magic marker and drew a line across the middle of Korea at the 38th parallel and divided uh, occupied Korea into two occupation zones, one occupied by the Soviet Union and the other occupied by the United States similarly to what happened in Germany at the end of World War II. 
Both sides agreed that they would leave by 1948. The Soviets left in 1948 and never came back. The United States still has tens of thousands of troops in South Korea, but the South Korean intelligence agency, and especially there are, there are units of that agency, have done nothing but try to repress people in South Korea who favor improved normalization of relations. And also they provide this endless stream of extreme stories about how terrible North Korea is and how terrible its leaders are. And many of these stories get big news, like that headline that the Washington Post, if you don't read the last two words, comma, uh, South Korea says, you think this is, yeah, North Korea is venting its fury. Kim Jong-un is angry. But these are unidentified intelligence uh, sources they get big media coverage in the Western media, in the U.S. media. Then most Americans think, oh, wow, North Korea is still like sort of crazy, insane, irrational, a venting fury, executing people left and right. Remember, the same unnamed South Korean intelligence sources said Kim Jong-un had executed his former girlfriend uh, because his wife, his current wife, was jealous and, and she was apparently executed with, you know, like anti-aircraft machine gun fire, ripping her body into shreds. Uh, then it turned out, you know, she appeared a couple months later because she's a, a singer and she was back on the concert stage in North Korea. But whatever, people aren't going to remember that she actually is alive and not dead, not, a, not executed. They'll really just learn about North Korea from the headlines. And even if you, you know, if you only read the headline, even if you read the full headline, people might not know that much about, I'm sure people don't know that much about, um, you know, about South Korea, North Korea's relationship. And you can read a little bit more in this article. Um, if you get down, not the first, not the second, not third or fourth, but if you get to the fifth paragraph below an ad, um, the Washington Post does say, quote, the South Korean intelligence account could not be independently verified. Information flows from secretive North Korea are very limited and such reports are not always accurate, unquote. And then so, you know, you can see right there, you know, this is something that's totally unverified and we don't actually know anything about this. Um, but if you if you go on, it's actually really important information about the fact that because um, North Korea is under so many sanctions and, it you know, these economic sanctions are designed to strangle the economy and really put a ton of pressure on, you know, the the everyday civilians in North Korea. Um, it goes on to talk about how they've had to close their border with China, one of the only countries they could actually trade with, um, who was willing to trade with them and was willing to risk those sanctions. They've had to close their border to make sure that they don't deal with any of the coronavirus issues. Um, they have zero reported cases of the coronavirus um, and that has come at a price because, again, China has been one of the only countries they can trade with. We're going to keep following this story. As I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to do a special on relations between South Korea and North Korea, relations between the U.S. and North Korea. There's a lot of uh, expectation that the that Biden will continue uh, the the sanctions on North Korea that he won't come to the negotiating table. But as I mentioned in our first show, Anthony Blinken, who's coming in as Secretary of State, uh, did acknowledge in a sort of roundabout way that if there's going to ever be an agreement with North Korea, 
Uh, it won't be based on the complete denuclearization of North Korea, uh, that there has to be an arms control regime. Now, that's important because North Korea maybe has 8, 10, 20 nuclear weapons. We don't know how many, but they sought those nuclear weapons as self-defense against the United States, which has thousands of nuclear weapons, and it promised to overthrow the North Korean North Korean government. But obviously, North Korea is willing to have a moratorium on any new nuclear tests or, or production of more nuclear bombs if the U.S. comes back to North Korea with the idea that there should be an improvement in relations. Point number one of the Singapore summit between Trump and Kim Jong-un was an improvement of relations between the two countries. Number two point was to set up a peace regime so as to make sure that there wasn't another Korean war. And only point number three, only uh, the third point, do we even start to talk about nuclear weapons and the prospect of denuclearization. So Anthony Blinken suggested or seemed to suggest in an interview before the election that uh, a new policy towards North Korea needs to be crafted that's based on the reality that North Korea is now a nuclear power. That's not going to change. But the question is, will there be a peace effort and a peace treaty and a settlement with North Korea? Every war has a beginning. Every war has a beginning. Almost every war has an end. But in North Korea, in South Korea, the Korean War has not ended for the Korean people. It's technically not ended. It needs to end with a peace treaty. Let's go on. Oh, by the way, and before we go on, just want to say, if North Korea and South Korea reunified on any basis, even if they didn't merge, even if they kept two different social systems, but became a unified country, which is a formulation of the DPRK, sort of one country, two systems, similar to what China is doing with Hong Kong or Taiwan. If they combined uh, North Korea and South Korea, that's about a, a country of about 80 million people, highly educated, uh, highly productive, obviously North and South Korea uh, united would be make Korea a real powerhouse. A country larger than France, it would be a Germany-sized country, and again, a real powerhouse. Anyway, we'll come back. We'll come back, and again, we're going to do a deep dive on U.S.-Korean relations in the coming weeks. Let's go uh, real quick, because time is going fast. Let's talk, Walter, about uh, massive protests against the Macron government in France over its racist, Islamic-phobic policies, anti-black policies, pro-police violence uh, policies. Anyway, real quick, let's talk about what's happened. Yeah, well, it was uh, a terrible attack from the Macron government, but one that was defeated by the mass movement of the people. So uh, after uh, you know a, a horrible terrorist attack took place in France, uh, the Macron government opportunistically took advantage of that in order to uh, essentially make themselves more uh, palatable, more acceptable to the rising far right in their country, fascistic far right around uh, what used to be called the National Front, now is called the National Rally. That's Macron's main 
um, adversary, main op, main main rivals, really going into the 2022 election. And so Macron decided to take advantage of this terrorist attack to uh, increase the level of Islamophobic repression and, and just sort of general repression against the population. So there was a bill that was introduced that would make it illegal, illegal to record police officers. Uh, and there is some language in there about how, you know, it's okay if it was part of, you know, legitimate journalistic blah, blah, blah. But but these are sort of very soft, you know, gray area, maybe enforceable, maybe not exceptions. Uh, the The bottom line is that this was a bill to criminalize recording police officers. Um, so there were demonstrations that broke out uh, almost immediately in opposition to this. Uh, then the French police, notoriously racist French police, beat uh, a young black man, Michel Zeckler. Uh, that um, you know made the the movement against this law to shield police from any kind of accountability to give the police you know total impunity, even people knowing who they are. Uh, that that gained momentum. Uh, and just uh, two days ago, the French government, the French parliament was forced to withdraw this terrible bill. Yeah. Yeah, it shows the power of the people. I want to move on to another story, Nicole. Again, time is going fast. Um, you know, for the last four years, Vladimir Putin has been condemned for interfering, for having Russia interfere in the U.S. election process. Now Putin is being condemned for not commenting on the U.S. election process. Here's the Washington Post. To Russia's Putin... President-elect Biden is still a candidate. Here's the first words. Xi Jinping did it. Recep Erdogan did it. Leaders across Europe, Asia, Latin America, and the Pacific also have congratulated President-elect Joe Biden. But even as Washington moves on with the delayed presidential transition, Russian President Vladimir Putin has held back on well wishes to Biden. Russia's holdout diplomacy is becoming so awkward that it risks being interpreted as a pointed message that Putin is siding with ongoing president, outgoing president Donald Trump and his baseless claims that the election was rigged in apparent attempts to delegitimize the president-elect. So now Putin is interfering in American elections by not congratulating Joe Biden. Here we have a situation, Nicole. For four years, Putin has been accused of interfering and sowing division. Now, there is a division in the United States. The The president of the United States says the elections are not legitimate, that they were based on fraud, and the Electoral College hasn't certified the new president. So Putin is saying, OK, I'm not commenting. I'm not commenting. And so now the Washington Post and the other American media are condemning Putin for not commenting about a contested election. Now, we know Biden is becoming the president, but the fact of the matter is technically, legally, and this is the Russian position, that until the uh, until the Electoral College certifies this vote, uh, they're not going to take Donald Trump's tweets or Joe Biden's tweets as official. Uh, and again, being condemned for that. Right. I mean, he was... It's just so ridiculous and so ironic that this is the case. Uh, there was this two and a half year, three year, uh, still ongoing in many ways, Russiagate um, hysteria that happened um, where Russia was being accused of interfering. And now uh, Russia is being accused of not interfering. And that's a problem. And it's just 
just the country's just trying to exist. And I think one quote really, one comment really sums it up for for me. I think this is pretty reflective. Russia's deputy foreign minister, Sergei uh, Rabkov, said that, quote, whoever ends up in the White House, I see no reason to hope for a dynamic improvement in Russian-American relations, unquote. Um, you know, he, they're just they're just waiting for official words so they don't get, you know, accused of anything. Um, and this is the irrationality of Russiagate and Russophobia generally, which isn't just Russiagate, but is is much more broad than that. Um, and yes. I think that brings up a really important topic, actually, because there are many more looming appointments here for Biden's cabinet. And one of the biggest hype people of Russiagate is Nira Tandon. And she has been nominated by Biden to head the Office of Management and Budget. Um, Nira Tandon is very clearly this sacrificial lamb to draw the ire of Republicans. She's drawing the ire of Republicans and progressives. She has, in many ways, uniquely uh, trash-talked Republicans, but not actually done anything progressive, as well as trash-talking and and undermining progressives and progressive policies. Um, I mean, it's it's really quite unique. And so this is just so clearly, um, you know, this this sacrificial lamb to um, uh, for Republicans to, um, you know, to be upset about and possibly to um, to be the fire. What is that phrase? Fire rod? Fire? It's not lightning fire rod. Stick. Lightning rod. Lightning rod. rod. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, to be this this lightning rod for um, to hopefully take as much of the heat as possible for all of his possible cabinet picks. Yeah, I I think that's important. I mean, Neera Tandon, I think she is a lightning rod. Uh, I doubt if she'll be confirmed, uh, but this would allow the Republicans to attack something something that's not that important to the Biden administration. Neera Tandon also comes from the Clinton wing of the party. Uh, she was very involved in. Uh, helping to so so-called rewrite welfare rules in the mid '90s. That's when seven million children overnight uh, were tossed off of any government benefits. The welfare program. Ten million people were cut off. Uh, Bill Clinton adopted a, a, a policy against poor people in the United States that had been the talking point of Ronald Reagan in the right wing. But Reagan, if he had tried to do it, the labor movement and the civil rights movement would have would have stood up and and fought back. But Bill Clinton came in and said, we're going to end welfare as we know it. And yeah, 10 million people lost benefits. Uh, they There was this system of workfare set up, which is basically creating uh, workers who had to work for welfare benefits and then, of course, compete against unionized workers doing public sector work. Uh, the whole thing was really bad. But again, I want to just emphasize Donald Trump was not a friend of Russia. Donald Trump was not uh, a friend of Putin. Uh, Brookings Institute, if people take a look, there's a there's something called on the record, the U.S. administration's actions on Russia. December 5th, 2019, sanctions in response to a hundred million dollar bank hacking scheme. September 30th, sanctions in response to the 2018 election interference. September 26th. Uh, sanctions in response to sanctions evading scheme for Syria. August 2nd, sanctions in response to Salisbury attack. May 16th, sanctions in response to human rights abuses. May 1, a statement attacking Russia for helping Venezuela. April 24th, statement attacking Russia for its, quote, assault on Ukraine sovereignty. March 15th, sanctions in response to Russia's continued aggression 
in Ukraine. If you go through the history of the Trump administration, there was nothing pro-Russia about it. The fact that Donald Trump said that he wanted to improve relations with Russia uh, was used by the Democratic Party and their their fawning media, their echo chamber media, uh, to condemn Trump as a as a tool of a foreign adversary, the Kremlin. None of that was true. But then Neera Tandon uses her very wide platform as the director of the Center for American Progress, which is supposed to be progressive, um, on her uh, very well-used Twitter account to call Mitch McConnell Moscow Mitch, as well as just, I mean, just childish and not actually useful, as well as calling out McConnell's, quote, weakness and recklessness on Russia, unquote. So, you know, just warmongering. Yeah. And she was at war also against Bernie Sanders. Sanders uh, criticized the destructive role of the Center for American Progress, which was led by Tandon. Neera Tandon, quote, this is Bernie Sanders, Neera Tandon repeatedly calls for unity while simultaneously maligning my staff and supporters and belittling progressive ideas. Not to mention that she wrote the Affordable Care Act, which, uh, as we all know, was passed during the Obama administration when they actually, the Democrats, had the majority in both the House and Senate and still just by some chance, didn't manage to even have a public option, not to mention anything close to Medicare for all. She hosted Netanyahu in 2015. She was a supporter of, quote, taking Libya's oil. Uh, when, and In terms of uh, her position on Syria, she said, while I don't want to be the world's policeman, an unpoliced world is dangerous. The U.S. may be the only adult in the room left. And again, uh, she played a role in destroying uh, a vital program for poor people, the welfare program in the 1990s. Uh, we're going to come back. I think we've run out of time pretty much, Nicole, on the discussion of other Biden cabinet picks. Uh, I, I see that there's a, you know, a lot of activity by some parts of the liberal peace movement saying Michelle Flournoy uh, shouldn't be the defense secretary, defense secretary, that there should be someone else. Uh, I just don't, I mean, I don't get it. Whoever is the pick for the defense secretary is going to be the tool of the military industrial complex and the, you know, the tip of the spear for the empire. I just don't see why the peace movement should bother itself with trying to get a better defense secretary. Uh, This whole system is completely militarized by a militarized imperialism and the military industrial complex is in the saddle and whoever is the defense secretary is going to do their bidding. Right. I mean, one, you know, there are plenty of, of things to say about Michelle Flournoy and she is really quite a war hawk. Um, but so are the other people being considered. Anybody who's going to be considered for this position, position, like you said, is going to be from the military industrial complex. She was uh, she's a board member on Booz Allen Hamilton. But, you know, the other people under consideration um, are rumored to be Jay Johnson, a member of the board of directors for Lockheed Martin, uh, also rumored to be Lloyd Austin on the board of directors for Raytheon. I mean, these are all military contractors who build weapons like that's just the, you know, until we're able to make a bigger change, that's the way it's going to be. And lobbying against Michelle Flournoy is great, um, you know, but I, the idea that someone else, someone better someone peaceful will be picked is, I think, not not a fight worth waging. It's just not going to happen. I think we're going to have to leave it right there, Nicole and Walter. We have run out of time, but we have a very important interview that I want to turn to 
Uh, it's with Sabina Wildman. As the coronavirus continues its rapid spread, students and universities have been some of the hardest hit. University workers and student workers are bearing the brunt of the crisis, while universities are still making money off of students and off of workers. We're joined by Sabina Wildman. She is a national organizing director with United Students Against Sweatshops, USAS, United Students Against Sweatshops. Sabina, welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Well, it's a great honor for us for you to join us. We admire the work of the students who have been doing the organizing of United Students Against Sweatshops. Real quick for our audience, before we talk about the conditions of students and workers in North America, in the United States during COVID-19, just describe briefly, if you would, what United Students Against Sweatshops is. When did it begin? Definitely. So USAS, or United Students Against Sweatshops, was started by students in 1997 when students on their campuses were were actually interning with the unions there. And they also started to realize you know, that their college apparel was being made in sweatshops and wanted to do something about it and really found that their leverage as students could could be using their their power as students on their universities to pressure the contracts that universities have with these multi-million dollar companies like Nike. But yeah, we are currently the, the largest student labor organization in the country with over 150 student locals. We call them locals, similar to how unions have locals across the country where students are leading all sorts of fights for labor justice as well as collective liberation. And so yeah, we're, we call ourselves the student arm of the labor movement. And you are the national organizing director. How did you get involved with United Students Against Sweatshops? And, and how did you become the national organizing director? Totally, yeah. So I went to University of California, Santa Cruz. When I was there, I got connected to the Campus Workers Union and I started organizing with them and I was an intern. And at the same time, I got introduced to USAS through a conference, the Student Labor Organizing Conference that was a UC-wide conference. And um, USAS was leading a whole bunch of trainings on organizing. And so that's how I got introduced to USAS. And it was just really inspiring to know that like, the work I had been doing on my campus wasn't just like, you know, me and like 10 other students on my campus doing this work, but students across the country um, were also fighting for, for campus workers as well as garment workers. And, and on top of that, being able to be part of a coordinated student movement was like really inspiring for me. And so I, I, um, I started a USAS local on my campus and that was good too, because we were able to build a sustainable student organization that was able to last it's still there <laughs> um, over the years because one of the big things that we face as student organizers is, is um, you know, like retention and turnover when students graduate. Um, so having a longstanding student org, you know, with this institutional history since the 90s has been definitely really important to keeping like the student labor movement sustained on campus. Um, but since then, when I was a senior, I was on the coordinating committee. And then after graduating, I moved to D.C. and have been working for USAS since then. Excellent. Well, it's a great, um, as I said in the beginning, great honor to have you with us. Let's get to the, the subject at hand. While some universities have only online classes this semester, many have opened and are requiring students to attend in person, allowing the universities to make tuition money and room and board off of their students. 
Meanwhile, student workers are a substantial portion of the essential workers of universities, and they are on the front lines of this crisis. Describe for our listeners what student workers are going through and what kind of organizing they're doing to fight back. Totally. Yeah, that's no, that's a really good point that you that you just made. And it's been really intense, um, an intense climate to be organizing in, but also one of the most important times for student organizers. So um, back in the spring when, you know, COVID hit and campuses were continuing to be open, some of them were closing down was when we started to launch our campaign called Student Worker Wednesdays, um, where we raised awareness that, that students are workers too. And oftentimes when people think about campus workers, they aren't thinking about student workers. Um, and so that was a big part of our Student Worker Wednesdays, as well as you know highlighting specific student workers at different universities who, who are either essential workers or who, who maybe like after the campus closed down were not able to receive their paychecks. And what's, what's oftentimes happens is a lot of these jobs get contracted out. And so the university will like remove responsibility or blame and be like, you know, like, that's not us, that's Chartwells, that's Sodexo, that's Aramark. Um, so that that was something that for sure came up. And so I think, and that also goes to goes to tell more about just like our overwhelmingly increased like privatization of, of universities. But anyways, back in back in the spring, we started with a, a campaign against University of Alabama, where um, we pressured the university to pay the student workers. That was in April. But then, and then since then, we've just launched a good amount of student worker campaigns, honestly. Um, so the University of Illinois at Chicago, we had two really important campaigns there with RAs. And so like something that has been so clear and so obvious during the pandemic is just the unique position that RAs or resident assistants are in. They get paid or their compensation is through room and board instead of like a paycheck which, which means that they have more to lose from organizing because the fears are much higher because they would literally get evicted the next day and lose their meal plan, which is typical, right, of like working class people in this country that like if you don't have a job, you can't like pay your bills. They're already on the front lines, but then also just like what they have to lose is everything's very deeply tied to their ability to like survive. And so RAs are predominantly like working class students at the universities. And so they tend to need free housing to go to school. I was an RA. It's also a really difficult job, you know, not even just like on the, on the regular before the pandemic, where you're really on the front lines of, of dealing with intense situations that happen at the university, you know, you're doing room checks, doing roommate mediations. And during COVID, that's only gotten worse, because obviously, roommate mediations are a whole nother level. <laughs> um, when students are, are quarantined inside with each other, and then doing room checks, like going into students rooms, and sometimes they were not being given PPE. And then also just like not not being told what's going on. That's just been a huge trend across all the universities is where students, you know, don't know where the cases are, where the quarantine dorms are. You know, we even had to pressure universities to make public dashboards to share like what the number of COVID cases are. And that was at that was at Gonzaga where we had to launch that campaign. But anyways, at University of Illinois, Chicago is where we we actually had really big victories in the spring. Um, the RAs were able to win full PPE kits with the N95 mask, gloves, hand sanitizer, tissue. They also, you know, got as much proper safety um, distancing protocol as possible, you know, little plexiglasses at the desks. And then they also got a huge, like, 
Well, it was a big victory because typically hazard pay is a really big, you know, struggle that comes after (laughs) winning PPE. Um, And so, and there's less precedent for that, but they, they won back pay through up until March 22nd with an additional $1 an hour of hazard pay. And then in the summer as well, the some, some of the summer RAs weren't even receiving meal plans. So that was another big victory. Um, But yeah, I would just say this is just a huge one with like RAs in particular, like at the university, of Maryland, the RAs are having to deliver, you know, six students food in their dorms. And, you know, the six students, I mean, first of all, that's a frontline job um, that they were not initially asked to do. And so there's just been an increasing number of tasks that the student workers are being told to do. And there's just no opportunity to negotiate what those expectations are. You know, RAs, again, they're not unionized workers, very few. (laughs) I think like one campus has unionized RAs. Um, So a lot of our organizing has been just like, urgent responding to these these huge things that are really dangerous <laughs> that they're being asked to do. Um, and, and generally universities, like you mentioned, are opened for the purpose of making profit and are not keeping in mind any safety protocols, don't even have ways to deal with things. There's no system in place if RAs get sick, like who would pick up the RAs extra work? And it tends to lead to more, you know, understaffing. And then additionally, just like when students do get sick, you know, they're moved to the quarantine housing. Um, But sometimes the university takes a long time to move those students into quarantine housing. And in the meantime, all the neighboring residents on their floor, you know, they're all sharing a bathroom, they're sharing a whole area, um, get sick. So there's just been a complete lack of care for, for student health and safety and specifically student workers being on the front lines. Recently at Wesleyan University, right before Thanksgiving break, there was like a huge campus spike and just giving the students a couple of days they were like so we're going to close down campus um and the ras were being asked to work move out which which consists of doing room checks um where students are all leaving and for all they know that student had covid and there's i think that so the students launched a petition actually to to get hazard pay and and the university responded immediately by trying to pit them against other campus workers saying well why do you think you're so special none of the rest of the campus workers are getting hazard hazard pay. And, you know, our students responded and were like, well, everyone should be getting hazard pay. This is a place to start. And the university was scared. They gave them fuzzy socks with the university logo, <laughs> which is like your typical pizza party of like, you know, anyways, but that, but that campaign that Wesleyan has launched is still a live petition. They're still pushing on that hazard pay. Um, and, and additionally, they've pointed out the fact that at Wesleyan, that's one of the only campuses where RAs there aren't actually even compensated the full amount of room and board, which is typical of RAs. And so what happened was they get, they get a paycheck, but it's based on the cost of room and board many years ago, and it hasn't adjusted to inflation. So it doesn't even cover the cost of room and board. So they're also asking for that there. Um, and then you know, another group of RAs at at Northeastern, they were all evicted last spring uh, with only 72 hours notice. And so the students were, all the rest of the students at the university were able to get prorated housing refunds, except for the RAs, because their housing, you know, is considered part of their paycheck, instead of like other students where it's like, oh, that's a separate thing that they can refund. Um, And so, it was even hard for students to be able to get an exception to stay on campus. And Northeastern has a lot of international students who were not able to to go back home and were stuck without 
any housing. Um, and on top of that, there are some students for whatever reasons, you know, don't have a safe or stable home situation. Or maybe if they went back home, they have family members who are, who are all working or who they didn't want to get, you know, exposed. So anyways, we're just seeing um, a large amount of universities putting putting those profits ahead and, and putting student workers in honestly some of the most dangerous positions. And they know student workers are very vulnerable in the sense that, you know, they need these jobs to make ends meet, to afford housing, to be able to be students um and and they're also you know not unionized and there's kind of like this overall sense that they can take advantage of student workers um but but USAS students are out there and like really pushing back and raising that that consciousness that students are workers too um so yeah (laughs) sorry that was a long answer no but very 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 informative uh Sabina when you know we live in a class society it's a you know, brutally polarized society. Um, there's the accumulation of wealth at one pole and the accumulation of, of misery at the other pole. And of course, I'm paraphrasing Marx in, in his epic book, Capital, Volume 1. But, you know, when we think about universities, people think, oh, that's sort of like, sort of not class society. The university is this idyllic place where the young or youngish type people come together to learn. But what you're describing is that the university setting is in fact a microcosm of our class society and sort of the brutality and the polarization uh, exists there as it exists everywhere. Uh, before before the show, we were talking and you mentioned that that there have been clear examples of how the recent layoffs have been impacting African-American or black workers harder. Um, Can you just briefly describe what some of the ways uh, that you've seen this play out? Yeah, definitely. Um, And that is totally, uh, totally true about um, universities being a microcosm for class society. And as we know, black workers in this country do face some of the the worst labor abuses. Um, And most university workers who are in the lowest paid university jobs, whether it's dining hall work, custodial work, bus drivers, groundskeepers, um, a lot of a lot of those lowest paid like service jobs are disproportionately, um, they have disproportionate amount of black workers compared to other campus jobs like um, professors or um, administrators. And so these same workers, the lowest paid workers are facing layoffs right now um, and also are working essential jobs. Um, so we've seen just across the board service workers at universities getting getting massively laid off as well as being, you know, some of the first workers being exposed to COVID. Um, and so I would say especially black women workers, as, as we know, some of the the majority of essential jobs are, are held by by women workers. And so we had a couple of specific incidences just with our campaigns that that have focused on the ways that that these labor issues are specifically impacting black workers. And so at University of um, Illinois in Chicago, for when we um, did the campaign to, to demand meal plans for the summer RAs, what one of the students shared with us, who's a student worker, was just that this was during the time of the uprisings. And so there was a curfew that Chicago had put in place. And so the fact that he wasn't able to get a meal plan was one thing, but also he wasn't even able to go buy groceries um, because there was a curfew put in place and he was a student and a worker 
throughout the day. And by the time the curfew hit, he couldn't go out to go to the grocery store. And some people were still going out to buy groceries. But as a black man, um, he was like especially concerned for his safety about just going to the grocery store. And that just increased the, the amount of importance of making sure that they got meal plans. Um, and so that's just one instance. But more recently, also, we've seen at the University of California, San Diego, where there's a particular incident that is just so egregious, um, where two, so there were two black women um, who got laid off, and they were the only two black women in their whole, like, layoff unit of 32 people um, who got laid off. Um, Tammy and Ashley are their names and they're they're both like in the managed care unit and they work at the, the health center and the health centers at the UCs are some of the biggest, most profitable parts of the university. Um, and, and again, workers are treated just very poorly. And so Tammy was laid off and there was no proper procedure after, like followed during her layoff at all. And her layoff was a targeted retaliatory layoff where she had raised issues about experiencing racial discrimination from her boss. Um, and it was very clear retaliation because directly right after she had filed, you know, to HR, this complaint against her supervisor about racial discrimination, um, she was laid off. And so there are instances like that where workers who raise their voices up against these instances of, of racism and and they're the first ones to, to get laid off. And it's definitely not not random, right? Um, and so in general, we're seeing a lot of Black workers being laid off. And, and universities are claiming that there's a lack of funds. And that's just literally, that's wild. Because the University of California, for this example, you know, they just hired a new president, Michael Drake, who used to be the president of Ohio State. Um, and now he's getting paid 890000 um, that's his base pay. So who knows? There's probably a, a little more. Um, but it, this was an increase of 56% from the last U, UC president's base salary, Napolitano. And so it just shows that if you're able to, and this was during the pandemic, he was hired and he hit this chancellor's salary was increased. If during the pandemic, they're able to, you know, raise the chancellor's, the president's pay, um, while at the same time saying, you know, we have a lack of funds, we need to lay off these lowest paid workers. It's like, well, this doesn't this doesn't add up. Um, and on top of that, we've just seen that universities, um, you know, like the CSU, for example, which is the California State University, also doing massive layoffs. Um, due, in a 2019 audit, they had over um, $1.5 billion made in profits. And those profits were directly made off of increased rising student tuition that leaves students totally crippled in student debt after graduating, um, as well as exploiting workers and just paying them literally scraps. And these, these campus workers cannot afford to make ends meet, to put food on the table, to pay rent. Um, a lot of them live miles and miles away from the university because they can't afford to live in the cities that the universities are in. Um, so there's just, I would just say that, that it's really interesting that the universities are, are claiming lack of funds for the reasons, um, that, that, that they're laying off. Workers. Yes. The old, the so. old boss's trick of claim, uh, crying poverty, uh, in order to uh -huh. reduce workers, lay off workers, cut workers wages. While again, the accumulation of wealth at one pole, the accumulation of misery at another. We're out of time. We were joined by Sabina Wildman. She is the National Organizing Director with United Students Against Sweatshops. Sabina, I hope you will come back to the Socialist Program and keep us updated. Thank you so much. Thank you.
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.